Epictetus? What do we control? What don't we control? So first of all, do you have the ability to, to know what is under your control and what isn't? And then do you have the ability to exert control where it's needed? And I think if you can master those two things, confidence and control or confidence and self-efficacy, similar things, if you can do those two things, you, you're on a good path. I think that will help most people navigate most uncertainties. Those who are living a life of freedom have optimized themselves and their lives in pursuit of one thing, choice. They've created the financial, geographical and time freedom to do what they want, when they want to. But they've also created freedom from their internal limitations, their story, their biology and their character. In this podcast, The Freedom Project, it is my attempt to shortcut your learning curve to having total freedom in your life so you can go and do more cool shit. I'm going to bring you deep dives into some of the most inspiring adventure athletes and business owners in the world. I'm also going to give you the key concepts of my coaching process to adventurepreneurs so you can start applying that to your life today. So here is another episode of The Freedom Project. It seems kind of obvious that having a great mindset is key to achieving your business and life goals. We often lack the actual steps to creating long-lasting change that really works. In this episode of The Freedom Project with Professor Martin Jones, we discuss the principles behind creating a mental performance training plan that actually changes your mindset. We include how to conquer physiological and psychological pain, why the pursuit of mastery is essential for developing mental toughness, how to find a deeper purpose in the mundane, and how to generate absolute confidence in yourself and your actions. Not only does Martin have some of the best facial hair in psychology since Freud, he shares timeless principles that overlap very, very neatly with the work that I do in the Adventurepreneur Collective. So this stuff really is tried and tested. So please welcome Professor Martin Jones. Where I'd like to start this is with a very simple question. Where did you get into psychology? When did psychology start becoming uh, of interest to you? I started a sports science degree. So when I was um, when I was eighteen, I went to university uh, with the the aim of becoming a PE teacher. That's what I thought I'd end up doing. Mm. And probably about a year into my sports science degree, I started to to change my mind a little bit. I was opened up to different topics, um, and and psychology was one of them. So I actually started doing biomechanics i actually dropped psychology as, as it went in my second year mm. and started doing biomechanics and quickly realized that i'm not particularly mathematically minded so there's lots of equations in mathematics very physics oriented and, and mathematical and it just didn't didn't suit me so i was really lucky that the psychology module started in the second semester of my of my second year so i was able to swap and jumped into this psychology module and was really fortunate to be taught by some some eminent psychologists, some eminent professors who've gone on to do some some really awesome things um, when they were really quite early in their careers. And, and it was they? that, um, there was a guy called Nikos Numanis who has jumped around all over the place. Um, he's currently in Denmark, I believe. Uh, there was a, a, a guy called Nick Holt who's based over in Canada doing a lot of stuff in youth sport um, and a few others. There, there, was, there, was, there was tons of people. Just to, It was really 
fortunate that there was that group of people who were teaching at the university that I went to at that time um, that I, I learned tons. They were inspirational. They were great, great lecturers. And that, that piqued my interest. So yeah, it was, it was around about the age of 19. And that took me into a dissertation project in psychology of sport um, that opened up another door to go into a master's degree that snowboarded into a PhD and you know, never really looked back. I'm going to guess it wasn't a logical decision to pursue as much money as you possibly can from psychology. Like what was, what was salient about it? Yeah, you're right. It wasn't that it was, it was just enjoyment and, it, and, and purpose. It felt really purposeful that I always wanted to teach, as I say, and, and I kind of did cause I moved in, I ended up working in universities teaching. So I, I, instead of being on the, the football field at three o'clock on a Monday teaching 11 year olds, I was in the lecture theater. So I've always, I've stayed with that education focus. But psychology felt meaningful. It felt like I could really help people, and 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 that that's what that's what drove me. I could see, I could see the the impact of the work that I was doing, and my my journey went from performance. So I, I initially started thinking about being the psychologist for england rugby or i was a big tennis fan big i was playing a lot of tennis at the time thinking you know could i could i go on to the atp tour as a psychologist i was really focused on on performance and then through my master's degree i went to one lecture i remember going to one lecture by a professor called dan gould um, just recently retired american legend in in psychology he's written tons of the textbooks and i was i, I met him and he he challenged me and basically said if you get a hundred people playing sport at the age of 12, 13, how many of them will be, will get a career out of it? And you know, the answer is top, like not even one. If you were to round it up to a whole number, it'd be zero. The, the number of people that play sport as a child or, a, or an adolescent who go on to become a professional athlete is, is so small. So he challenged me. It's like, well, how can we help the 99.9%? What, what is it about sport that can improve people's lives? How do you keep people active throughout their lifespan? How do you get, how do you prevent that 16 year old girl dropping out of netball that she loved when she was 15, but at 17 hates it? What, why, what's happening there? So my focus really shifted and my PhD moved into youth sport. And I started to look at this area. Uh, this it was a, it was an emerging area at the time, um, called positive youth development. And and I tried to understand how does sport teach people life skills? How does the the experience of playing in a team transfer into the boardroom? How does the experience of communicating with somebody who's just made an error and you're really angry with them, but but you need to tamper down that anger or that or you need to communicate them communicate with them in such a way that's that's productive how do you transfer that into a relationship um, and and so that that's what started to really interest me so i moved down that route and that that's why it felt really purposeful i could see how the experience of hitting tennis balls wasn't just about hitting tennis balls it was teaching people about effort about persistence about dealing with failure about being able to manage your emotions and as a child i was a very angry tennis player like I smashed a few rackets had a few tears so on many the court. are yeah I, I was awful to the point where my dad nearly stopped me playing he he actually wanted to take me out of the tennis club so it, it like I, I recognized that there was there was a value to sport beyond just hitting tennis balls and that that's what that's why it felt 
felt like the, a good thing to do. And, and yeah, it was never about the money. Far from it. Yeah, I really like that. Is it Jean Piaget, the developmental psychologist, talks about the it's essentially like a a building block structure of well, you become good at um, let's say a backhand slice, but that's really tempering you as a tennis player, and that's tempering you as a human being overall. So these small aspects of skill development have a huge impact on our development as as a human being. Too. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's that it's that argument that you've got these almost specific resources we can call them specific or general resources so a specific resource might be if i'm stood in front of a, of a rugby ball ready to kick a penalty the specific resources the leg the leg strength the the coordination the you know the neuromuscular pathways allow me to coordinate my limbs to hit that ball but the general resources are well can you control your breathing can you control your attention in terms of where you're looking, your gaze behavior, are you looking at the ball or are you, are you constantly moving around the crowd and getting distracted? Can you control your, your internal dialogue, your attitude, your beliefs? Now, all of those things will help you kick a rugby ball, but they'll also help you in, a, in every area of your life. If you can learn the process of recognizing what, what is within that, that controllable fortress within how do you then revert to that when you need to? And sport can give young people those experiences. And then as we grow, we might not be playing rugby anymore, but we can still, we can call on those skills that we've learned as a, as a younger person and use them in life. Where does that typically fall down? Because I know a lot of people have played sport and then definitely didn't develop those skills. I think like personally speaking, I think I developed about, probably 50 60 percent of them and like they're very very useful but i have to develop them elsewhere but i look back at my sporting career now like cricket football especially and thinking well if i had some process for developing that that would have kind of ascended my journey so much more yeah that's what my phd was about to be honest it was answer, it was trying to answer that question so we can't then what, yeah. what is the answer Give me <laughs> a PhD i'm not sure I'm not, I'm not sure if there's one, one answer i'm yeah. not sure if there's one answer but i'll tell you a story I was at a conference and I was listening to uh, two two individuals, two coaches, and they they were they were a team and they were they were coaching golf. These two coaches um, were were working with one of the world's greatest golfers at the time. Um, this this golfer had been on the tour for years. She'd won tons of stuff. You know, couldn't do much more in her sport. So and and getting to an age where this individual was starting to, you know wasn't in the the peak of a career anymore aging um, a little bit not performing as well so this individual the the athlete the golfer said to her coaches i'm thinking of retiring what do i do now and the the coaches said well what do you do motivational speaking why don't you go on the circuit do uh, public speaking maybe going to commentary effectively use your experiences and communicate them to the to the world and this 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 individual said oh, i can't do that um I, I i'm i can't do public speaking i'm no good at public speaking um I, I don't do that sort of stuff i don't perform well i can't do it so they said well you know that's a career for you, you know what you're up to now and she said oh, i've just got to go and do my press conference i've got 400 journalists who are waiting to hear from me i'm on the stage i've got to talk about the round i've just had and it was that that disparity of well you just told me that you can't speak in front of people yet you're just about to go and do a press conference in front of hundreds of people 
arguably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands might be watching at home. And it was, it was that the, dis, the, the, the disconnection. It wasn't, the, the two things weren't seen as the same. So effectively with this athlete didn't have the awareness that was lacking that self-awareness that they had that skill and they didn't have, so first and foremost, they didn't know that they were really good at, at public speaking. They just, just considered that thing they did. So what my PhD looked at um, and the culmination of it was an intervention to try and increase individuals awareness of the skills that they are using. So we talk about the tacit knowledge or knowledge in action, knowledge on action. Sometimes you just do it and it's not at the level of consciousness. You can't articulate what you're doing. So for example, you can ride a bike. I'm sure you can. Can you articulate how you ride a bike? Because a lot of balance, a lot of movement, it's not at the level of consciousness. You don't think about it. You just do it. And what I was finding was a lot of the skills that young people have when they're playing sport, they just do them. Teamwork is something they do. It's not something they know how to do. Communication is something they do. It's not something they know what is what is good communication. It just is or it isn't. If that, so my, my PhD thesis, the culmination of it was an intervention to increase awareness. So you as an example... As a, as a young person playing cricket, playing football, why don't you transfer them? Why don't you don't transfer some of those skills? I would argue that fundamentally there's a, there's a lack of awareness that you have them. So we need to bring that into consciousness. We need to bring, bring people's awareness that they have these skills. And then we need to identify areas in their life where they'll be useful. So then we use this idea of anticipatory coping, or, uh, you know, this idea of you just looking into the future and thinking, well, what might befall me in the future? So if this happens, then I use that. It's that if, if then sort of planning. So once we know we've got these skills, we can start to identify times where they might be useful. And then we can think about, well, what might stop me using that in that in if I'm if I use if I'm a, if I'm a leader on the football pitch, what might stop me being an, an effective leader in the in the boardroom? Um, and it, it's it's that sort of process of of just helping people understand what it is they have and what they can use and where they can use it. It's really interesting that making it explicit makes it trainable. It's like you take it from the unknown to the known, and or at least the observable. And that um, process really interests me because it's like one of the things that I do with the clients that I work with. And I, I view this more through a philosophical lens. I actually use a Stoic framework of what are the four Stoic virtues. And yep. it's like, okay, we're, we're training courage. Um, and we're doing that through your ability to, I don't know, do some cold outbound. And it's like, that's what we're doing. And we're not just training your ability to get more sales and hopefully developing your business, but we're developing your um, individual capacity in terms of that philosophical so it's um i suppose what i'm saying is it's very reassuring to hear that that's grounded in some some practical evidence-based stuff yeah i i mean i i i think maybe in a different way it's reassuring that my thinking is grounded in thousand year old <laughs> philosophy that yeah. you know, is proven time and time again it's i think that that's another thing I, i've noticed in my work is so much of what seems to be new and novel it, it isn't it, it, there's there's a there's a there's a there's a golden thread that takes you back to you know Socrates or you know pre-Socratic philosophy. It's it's a lot of it isn't new. We just give it different names. Yeah, the thing that stands out there is things like um, yoga nidra, um, non-sleep deep rest, like that kind of. Um, it's a very 
if it was a yogic practice, it's it's very it's thousands of years old, and it kind of I, the only way I can presume that it was used and reinforced is that it was beneficial and it felt good, and then people went, well, that there's some science behind that, there's some mm. proof behind it, so it seems like there's there is truth um, in these things. One thing you mentioned is you mentioned that you were an angry tennis player. You don't seem like an angry bloke now. Maybe just putting a great <laughs> um, a great face on it, but. Talking about that journey of, of where you got to and how that limited you and then also if you made any attempts to to work on that. I think being an angry child, I don't think it's that abnormal. The the ability to control your emotions is something that's that doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. In my experience, it's something that's that's quite hard and and you think we we we've developed an emotional system we talk about the the neurobiology of emotions they they are hardwired into our brain they're there for a really good reason it's part of a stress response if we if we didn't need emotion both negative and positive then evolution probably would have got rid of emotion for us and and it hasn't so unless it's just some quirk of evolution that the emotions just happen to be there and they're not valuable but i i don't believe that i think they they serve a purpose so so being emotional as a young person, I think is quite normal. And I see, I used to see this all the time with golf, um, with golfers that if, 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 if we can think about how in a very, very basic sense, how the brain works in terms of emotion, one of the parts of the brain that, that is like an emotional center for, for want of a better phrase sits within the limbic system and your frontal lobes, uh, the, the bit sort of behind your eyes at the front of your, of your head, you, they act as a, as a, almost a breaking force on, on those emotions. So it's, we know, we kind of know this because of people who've had brain injuries. So if people who've had, um, say like frontal lobe dementia, or they've had a damage to part of their frontal lobes, they're missing maybe through, through a catastrophic accident. Um, most famous one in psychology, it's a guy called Phineas Gage who, who had a, a an iron rod fired through his yeah. through his chin and punched a hole out of his frontal lobes. They become very aggressive. They 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 become very very emotional. Um, they lose that ability to regulate their emotions. And what I used to see with adolescents as their brains developing, because remember that, that an adolescent isn't just a scaled down adult. They are developmentally unique, and you'd see them take really risky shots so on the golf course you see them taking really risky shots and the coaches would be going what are you doing why are you playing that shot and and they can't they, they don't have the 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 ability to recognize that that's a really risky shot so i used to see that a lot and, and that's why you sometimes see um, young people who've got higher rates of, of alcohol abuse or teenage pregnancy these risky these risky lifestyle behaviors that maybe we wouldn't do as we get a bit older. Um, it's because our brains have developed by that point and we can add that, that breaking force. Um, again, it's a very basic, basic trying, a description of what's happening. So as a young person, you are more likely to be emotional because you don't have that breaking force developed yet. And that happened to me for definite. I used to cry when I was on the tennis court. If I lost, um, I used to get really, really nervous before playing a game i used to I, I i'd locked myself in the car a few times because i was so anxious about playing and you know, what did i do to stop that i just grew like i got older and it got to a point where 
it, it things something just clicked that it, it didn't it it didn't affect me in the same way um i don't think this is you know this isn't like a nine month journey this is from the age of 12 to, to 25 i think um well that's when your prefrontal cortex typically stops developing isn't it around 25 yeah yeah individual variability um, but but roughly speaking yes you, you're pretty much an adult by the time you're mid 20s in, in terms not of 18 not 18 no so in terms of like bone development ligament you know all these things you, you've pretty much stopped growing if you like um by by 25 so i think then that's that that was the, the process for me that i i i finished my phd when i was 25 so i would kind of reflect back on the the 22 year old version of me and very very different now um, because of the experiences that I've had and the 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 way that that life has, uh, has has emerged for me has made me do things differently now that I would have done when I was 21 22 so yeah I think it's just a process of gaining as many experiences as, as I possibly can and I think just I think I'm, I well I know I'm, I'm quite an introvert my my personality I I'm I, I spend a lot of time inside myself um, I think that's where, you know, I, I'm quite cerebral. I think a lot like that's my daily walk with the dog is an hour of just me thinking. So I think that's part of my personality that I've reflected and anal analyzed myself. I think that's, that's where how I've developed those, those skills. It feels like the introspective nature is useful for being a psychologist. It seems like that's, um, I, I don't know, you, you've probably got a way better insight on that than, than I have, but it seems like there's a lot of introspective psychologists. I think so. I think there's, you've got to be able to know yourself before you can really help anybody else. Do you think that's where the original kind of development into or the interest in psychology comes from for you, for you and for for most people like i can look at myself and i actually wanted to do psychology at a level and then the irony is someone said it was really difficult and i went oh i can't do that then and then <laughs> i backed off it wish i'd gone down that route now but i think that's what got me into the self-development world into philosophy and um, into um coaching eventually what got me into the royal marines was that interest in like developing the self and that introspective nature too and trying to figure it out for myself yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. My first journey into it, into psychology, was I was a failed tennis player. Like I wanted to be. My dream growing up was to play at Wimbledon. I wanted to be a tennis player, and um, you know, pretty early on, I I realised that that ain't gonna happen. As soon as you know, start playing against some really good tennis players, and you realise like I it I haven't I haven't got it. You know, probably. Why I haven't got it, I don't know. Is that because I haven't trained enough? I mean, we, that's a that's a whole different debate. But I knew I did. I wasn't going to make it. So my journey was trying to say, well, why didn't I? Like it was trying to understand what what was happening in me, and if I worked on my psychology, could I at least you know, get onto one of the minor tours or something like that? And they, you know, it was never going to happen. But that it was very selfish. It was trying to understand me because. I had an unfulfilled goal and I wanted to try and understand why. And then as I developed and, and learned and, and there was more of a deep dive into it as a, as a science, I'm, I understood that I could help a lot of other people and, and that, that switched my, that switched my attention. Where did that lead you over the next few years from, uh, from your original journey into psychology and then how'd that develop over the three to five years after that? 
So finishing my degree, um, as I say, I, I always wanted to be a teacher. So my, my route was pretty planned. As an 18-year-old, I thought I'd go and do a three-year sports science degree. I'd then do a one-year PGCE and then move back to my hometown and, and go and be a PE teacher in the school that I went to. You know, that, that, that's what I kind of thought. And um, so I finished my degree and then it was, well, I don't want to be a teacher anymore. So I don't want to do a PGCE. So what's next? And at the time, one of my lecturers, he had done a PhD in Canada and he said to me, why don't you go abroad? Why don't you, why don't you go and leave, leave the UK, um, go, go abroad. So I started looking at master's degrees around the country, um, in the UK and, and in America and Canada. And I applied to Loughborough and I'd applied to Loughborough as, a, as an 18 year old and they rejected me. I didn't get in. And so I applied to Loughborough again and they accepted me. And I think there was, again, something there that, that I'd been rejected as an 18 year old. And I just thought, I'm going to go to Loughborough. And, and I think I was too immature to go to the to America or Canada at the time. And I don't think I would have done well. So I went to Loughborough, did a, did a master's degree at Loughborough. So went had that lecture from Professor Gould and something, there was a spark and I thought, this is interesting. I really want to dive into this a bit deeper. And at the time there was a professor there, um, David Lavalley, who said to me, have you ever thought about doing a PhD? And the answer was, well, no, I haven't never. Uh, I didn't, it's not something I'd ever thought about. I'd, no one in my family had, had gone to university. I don't think before me uh, my sister it was around about the same time, but and no one else. So it's like, no, never thought about a PhD. And he said, well, here's what it is. If you write a proposal, five pages of a research topic that you'd like to study, send it in. And there's a, there's a, there's a, what are called school funded PhD scholarships and apply for one of those. So I did handed it to him pretty much the next day. I think I literally just went home and wrote it. And he said, how long did it take you to write this? I'm like, I don't know, not long, a day. So that that will hold you in good stead, and um, that you can that you can write quickly, you can put your ideas on paper quite quickly, and applied for a scholarship and got it. So halfway through my masters, I knew well the end of the masters, I've got this this PhD to go into. So stayed at Loughborough, did three years, just I think it was just a shade over three years of a PhD, whilst at the same time trained to be a psychologist. Um, was really fortunate to be supervised by. Um, a really great psychologist who went on to be the the the, the, the psychologist for Team GB, a number of Olympics. So an amazing person to, to be trained by. And by the end of it, I kind of thought, well, now's a time to leave the UK. Like, where I, I let's spread my wings. So I was given an opportunity to move to Canada and pack two holdalls, got a, got a plane ticket. And off I went and I was there for two and a half years through, yeah, two and a half years, um, working as a postdoctoral research Where fellow in, Canada? in uh, Edmonton, Edmonton, Alberta. Okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah. The university of Alberta. Okay. So, yeah. What was different about being in Canada to, to the UK? And I mean that almost psychologically. The, I, I m moved out there based on the the professor that taught me at my undergraduate degree the one i said had done a phd in canada had moved back so he went he was british but he moved back to canada and he said come out so i knew him so he he was my he was my boss i knew him landed 
stayed with him for for a few weeks and then went and got an apartment on my own and I kind of sat in that apartment and it's now what like I don't know anybody like I know I didn't know anyone in the city the province the country I didn't know anybody the my my friends at home are, are, I think it was an eight nine hour time difference away so you know most of the time they're asleep when I'm awake so I can't even ring them and talk to them so I was, I was just completely on my own and I used to go into the university I'd see people on a, on a, on a daily basis but on a Saturday or a Sunday for example I was on my own I was and to be honest quite quite lonely like I, I, there was a few times I thought what have I done like I don't know anybody I don't um this is quite a, a lonely existence so for me in my development what changed was I just thought well I have to do something I have to I have to be proactive I have to get out of this I can't just stay in the house so I started joining joining a local tennis club started meeting people and they'd say do you want to do something and my response was yes so if they said do you want do you want to come to we, we're going to I mean Alberta's a, a pretty unique province but there's lots of cowboys proper cowboys like ranching it's like the Texas of Canada right just yeah really similar so there was one. There was a, there was a university. Um, there was a university event which was like the cowboy ball or something like that. And they said, "Do you want to come to the cowboy ball?" And, I, and my my initial reaction is absolutely not. <laughs> like I do not want to go to the cowboy ball. But I thought, well, what's what else am I going to do? I'm going to stay at home. It's like, yes, I'll come. I didn't enjoy it one bit, but I went. It was it was weird and and but for me at least. But I went. Do you want to come and watch this? Do you know, come there's a Canadian football match. Do you want to come to that? Yes. Do you want to do this? Yes. I just said yes to everything. And it it, it just brought me out of myself that I suddenly realized that uh, like I as a, I am an introvert. I I I do I need to be a, on my own sometimes, but I also realized that I actually have good communication skills, good interpersonal skills. Like those things are not they're in, independent. In introverts aren't people who just can't talk to other people I, I learned that i need my own space and time but i'm quite good in with other people i can communicate i'm you know i'm not just a hermit and and it, and that's what i mean i look back now at the 22 year old who would have said no to a lot of things because 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 i'm just a bit shyer i realized that i could do i could do these things i could um yeah i could be a bit more outgoing you still listen to country music or didn't you know, <laughs> didn't get bitten by the bug i've never listened to country music I, I got i got quite into neil young when i was out there He's a ca canadian superstar um yeah i like i like a bit of neil young Joni mitchell and those canadian stars we'll get you back into it. it's interesting what you're saying about um the exploration there and having to go into the unknown um it's so tempting when we're in those challenging situations to just find stability and predictability and when you're in completely unknown the predictability is your flat your apartment and just mm. oh, just stand there and just not do anything so that desire to go out and to to um confront the unknown is a really interesting thing to do yeah where did where did that process lead you in terms of your interest in psychology um and how did that develop over the next few years it was um so professionally, if I'm honest, it probably wasn't a great move for me going to Canada. I didn't, I didn't do that well professionally. Um, 
it was personally the best thing I ever did, but professionally not so good. The area that I was working in around coaching, there's some some stuff with parents, um, how parents deal with their children who are playing sport. Um, I, I don't know why it just stopped. It stopped feeling so important. Various reasons, I think, but it, it something about it just changed. So I then started to to look at some different ways of actually doing the science. So at this point, I used to use a lot of what's called qualitative research methods. So I used to interview people, lots of observation, talk, lots of talking. And I started to think about, well, what about the quantitative way of doing science with so more numbers and statistics, which, as I've said, I wasn't mathematically minded, so I was always put off by statistics. And so I started to say, well, some of the things I'm more interested in now probably will need a bit more of a quantitative approach. And and what I was starting to get interested in at that time was the individual differences. So we talk about differential psychology. So why, how, what makes me unique? What makes me different to you in terms of our, our psychology? And we know that all the, pretty much every attitude, skill, trait, it's, there's a normal distribution. Some are very high, some are very low. Most people are in the middle. And we can't really get to that through interviewing people. We have to, we have to use psychometric tools. We don't have to, but we, we use psychometric tools. We use statistics. So that, that's what started to interest me. I, I started to look at a construct called mental toughness that really originated in sport. Um, it's around, you know, how do you, how do you bounce back from adversity, which we think of as resilience, but then what if you don't have adversity? What if everything's going fine? Do are you the kind of person who keeps pushing, who you know, keeps striving, and uh, can you thrive within in in challenging situations? So mental toughness really is about um, surviving, striving, and thriving. So that's how it's mm-hmm. slightly different to resilience. There's a lot of crossover, though, to be honest. So I started doing some research on that. I started. I, I got interested in the individual. What what do what do what do we bring to the table what are the resources that we have within us that we can use within certain situations to help us navigate the uncertainty difficulties those sorts of things okay i've found it really interesting surviving striving thriving right yeah okay what did you learn from that how did that change the way you view the world i started doing some experiments to be honest so the the way we measure mental toughness is is problematic because nobody nobody thinks of themselves as mentally weak. So you, it, within psychology, we need to look at these poles. We we think in like personality psychology, we've got introversion, and then the other end is extroversion. There's a, there's a there's two poles, and we tend to be closer to one pole or the other. So if mental toughness is at one end, what's at the other end? And and this this idea of mental weakness doesn't really exist as, as a psychological construct. There's no tool to measure it. It's, there's no systematic reviews on it. It's not is really it something a, like a, a lack of agency or something like that. Maybe, yeah, yeah. There's there's loads of we we could talk about this and we could probably come up with an answer of again, aren't we? Yeah, we could come up with an answer of what what is the conceptual opposite of someone who's mentally tough. We could do that, but but to be to be at the time, researchers just weren't really. So I started to 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 do some of this research, and I noticed that if you've got a scale that that's from zero to fifty-two, zero is not mentally tough at all. Fifty-two is you're, you're Superman. 
most people were ranking themselves at 50, 50, 49, 48. So I started to think, well, hang on a minute, this, this can't be right. Like if, if these, we know that most of these constructs are, are normally distributed. Some people will be low. Some people will be high. So I, I, I started to question some of it. And then I started to think, well, are we just giving, are we, is it, is it money for old rope? Are we, are we, we, we're coming up with what we call mutton constructs. You know, uh, th- what I mean by that is that mental toughness is maybe just something that's existed for years that we've just called something else. So I started to think, well, is it self-efficacy? Is it resilience? Is it hardiness? Is it grit? Are these things unique? Are these things different to one another? Or is it just a, a researcher who is making a case that grit is something new and it's different to conscientiousness? So we, so when we start to shave these things back, we use conscientiousness, conscientiousness being like the ability to work hard at something. Yeah. So grittiness being a grit, being gritty is being somebody who's detail oriented. They'll persist. But but we see the same sort of thing with people who are conscientious and persistent. So why, why create a new name for it? So we can use this process called Occam's razor. We're shaving things back until the the most simplest answer. That's what I started to question is, is mental toughness the simplest answer or is it something that is maybe like say money for all rope whilst also recognizing that coaches and athletes use that term all the time. So it's meaningful to them. So I'm not, I don't want to be that researcher who comes in and say, you're done. You don't know what you're talking about. It's nonsense because it's not, they use it. They believe in it. It's a, it's a meaningful phrase. It's in that we call this the lexicon. It's this, the lexical hypothesis in psychology is that things that are important to people will be encoded mm. into our language basically. So it is important. So I was, I was just being a bit more critical and thinking, well, what, what's going on here? Um, and then thought, well, how do we test it? So luckily there was a paper written in about 2002, if I remember correctly, by a guy called Graham Jones, no relation to me. Um, he was a professor at Loughborough just before I, I got there. And he interviewed some world champion uh, athletes and they came up with these attributes of mental toughness. Like what it, the, the paper is literally called, what is this thing called mental toughness? If you're an adventurepreneur and you want more freedom to do more cool shit, then I want to help you do that. Every month, I take on a maximum of three new clients into my high-performance adventurepreneur program. This is a completely bespoke, personal, and deep-dive program giving you complete freedom, teaching you high-performance mastery. It's application and invite only, and I accept only those who are the best fit for the program. To apply for your space, head to my Instagram, Tom Foxley, F-O-X-L-E-Y, and send me a message with the word interested. And they tried to understand what is it in an in athletic context. And at that point, as, as we do in science, in academia, people started cr- critiquing. And one person said, this isn't a list of what mental toughness is. It's a list of what mentally tough people do. So it's a set of behaviors around mental toughness, which is, I think is a valid critique. And one of them was that men, people who are high in mentally, mental toughness can push back the limits of pain whilst maintaining technique that's that's what that was in that paper so i thought i've got an idea i can induce pain i can i can experimentally induce pain as a as a so we can control that and we can see whether people who rank themselves as mentally tough can push back the boundaries of pain so do so when pain we can talk about pain intensity how much it hurts pain threshold 
the point at which you recognize that sensation as something more than unpleasant and as now being painful and pain tolerance. And pain tolerance is the maximum amount of pain you are willing to endure. So it's 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 a motivational construct. It's how much are you willing to do? And that's why it changes. So a pregnant woman, a woman who's giving birth will be willing to endure immense pain because it's very motivationally salient to them. It's, it's meaningful to them, purposeful. Whereas that same woman, if we put her on a bike and say, right, ride up that mountain in the Alps, which again will be very painful, but she's not a cyclist. They, I'd, I would predict that that person will probably get off the bike and say, I'm not doing that. And there's a different physiological state happening. There is. Hormonally. Yeah. Yeah. So there's different pain. My, my key point is that pain changes yeah. based on the situation. So I started doing experiments around pain um, and mental toughness and other, and other constructs. Can we predict somebody's pain behavior based on what's going on up here? And the, the evidence at the time, the literature at the time suggested, yes, we, we can. And people who are mentally tough do endure more pain. They, they, they are, have, have higher pain tolerance. Um, but a, a well-cited study was one where they, the, the researchers asked the participants to basically get a weight, hold a weight out in front of their body. So sat at a desk like I am now, lift the weight up to sort of the, that sort of level and just hold it for as long as you possibly can. And, and that study showed that people who were high in mental toughness held the weight for longer. So I, I started thinking, I'm not sure about that. So I retested it. So there's in psychology there is a there's a thing called the replication crisis so you can you can google that and you can see what it is but a lot of studies weren't haven't been repeated no one could re could replicate them which would suggest like can we then trust the original finding if no one can replicate it so i, I thought i'll replicate that study if we measure mental toughness using the same measure that they did and we hold a weight in the same pro process same procedure that they did will we find the same results and my study did not so and, and consistently I keep finding that mental toughness does not predict pain behavior. The people who are high in mental toughness based on how we measure it do not tolerate more pain. They don't have a higher pain threshold. They don't rate pain as lower. So they don't have a lower pain intensity. It just doesn't hold up. And I'm still doing some of that research now. I've um, got some, a PhD student who's doing it and we just don't find a, a strong relationship because coming back to my key point is that there's more going on there's motivations, there's the situational constraints, there's the physiology, there's loads of things that influence how someone processes pain. It's not, it's not as simple as if you're high in resilience or high in mental toughness, you'll tolerate more pain. It just doesn't work like that. Hmm. Okay. There's, there's loads of places I go with that. Does that transfer equally to psychological pain, physiological pain, if we're talking about, I don't know, um, to make it relevant to the audience, a business owner who is in a very difficult place of growth, would that be, would there be parallels there? Yeah. So if you, if you look at the, how you, how to define pain, pain is a psychological construct. What, what we, we can, we can differentiate some, we call the, the neuroscientific process of, pain is actually called nociception so we have a noxious stimulus let's say you cut your leg so the process of of signaling that pain from the point of the cut to your brain that is nociception 
but pain is not the same as nociception. So what I mean by that is there's lots of examples from from the battlefield to be to be to be, to be brutally honest. People lose a limb. They'll have a limb blown off. Uh, they won't notice it's happened until four or five minutes after the event because their adrenaline's pumping, they've got high attention, things are going on around them. So we know that there's what we call bottom-up processing. So the, the point of the noxious stimulus is the going up into the brain, but there's a top-down process as well. So your emotions, your attention, your things in happening in your brain can can we close what we call these neural gates. So things going down to the side of nociception influence pain as much as things going up. So coming back to the question, can pain be emotional, physical? Ab- absolutely. So emotional pain is 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 a the similar sort of thing. It's not about saying, well, it, here is the cause and effect. It's not about the the noxious stimulus to the brain that there's a there's a line. There's there's more things going on within the brain that can, can that can cause emotional pain, and and pain researchers don't differentiate between the two. How do you define mental toughness now? I still think of it in the same way that mental toughness is is it allows people to do those things, survive, thrive, and and strive. But but what is it? I, I think mental toughness is an umbrella. It's it's a it's a group of things assets, resources, personality traits that that aggregate together, that come together. And when you have this grouping, that the combination of these things will help will help you strive, survive, and thrive. So for example, being optimistic as a personality trait is pretty beneficial for a lot of things. Not for everything, but it but it typically people who are optimistic tend to cope in a certain way they tend to see the world in a certain way being and then so if you've got that personality trait and then you have certain you know a a proclivity to use a certain coping style so you you use a bit more of um, emotion focused coping where you're like that sort of idea of stoic sort of coping which is a bit more controllable You're, you're thinking about your reaction to the event rather than trying to change the event so if you've now got optimism and you've got that that way of of reacting to events in the way that you can control they, they've now grouped together and then we can add a few more things in we can add a bit of confidence people have got high self-efficacy beliefs people who uh, have maybe got um higher self-esteem they, they tend to group together and i think that's what mental toughness is is when in certain situations that this grouping comes together uh, it's like to use the analogy of you know you've got a golf bag of 14 clubs mental toughness is the golf bag full full of clubs it's not one club it, it it's it's a combination and then in certain situations you take out your sand wedge in certain situations you take out your your putter based mm-hmm. on what's happening in the situation and i think that's what mental toughness is it's instead of 14 clubs it's can you could you have 100 and and select the right club for any situation what are the key clubs to have in the same way that you could probably get around a golf around uh, round a round of golf with a driver a seven iron a sandwich and a putter like what are the key elements of that I, I think you could, if you were, if you were trying to focus on two things, you're probably going to help a lot. That is, I call it C2, um, just because I work in, in, the, in defense and C2 is a well-known phrase, not command and control. This, this is confidence and control. 
So I think people who can develop confidence, so self-efficacy, that it's do you believe that you can execute a course of action to to get to where you want to be, to get a desired endpoint? Can you do that? Do you have the belief that you can? People that have high efficacy beliefs, uh, their behavior reflects those beliefs. So if I believe that I can run five kilometers, I'm likely to, to attempt to run five kilometers. If I don't believe I can run a marathon, I probably won't attempt it. I'll probably say, oh, I'm going to go for 5K instead because I believe I can do that. So your behavior is reflected in, in, in those efficacy beliefs. So having high self-efficacy is really important. But with the, with the note of caution that it, the self-efficacy is situation-specific. So my efficacy beliefs to run five kilometers is largely independent of my efficacy beliefs to swim five kilometers. Distance is the same, but very different. I'm not a good swimmer. So I might have high belief that I could run it or cycle it, but very low belief that I can swim it. So if you said to me, go and I would like you to do 30 minutes of exercise today, I'm not going to go swimming because I don't believe I'm a very good swimmer. So, so you see what I'm getting, it, it, your belief system, around what you can you execute a course of action changes on what's happening in the situation. But if you can bolster that sense of self-efficacy, if we're talking about a tennis player or a military operator, if they believe they can achieve an outcome, they probably will enact behavior that, that gets them on that right path. They'll select goals that are related to those things. People who've got high self-efficacy select more demanding goals they are probably more committed to those goals. So that's one thing, self-efficacy. And we can loop back to how you develop efficacy in a minute if you want to. The next one is control. Do you have the ability to, to look at that? Again, we talk about stoicism, but the, that dichotomy of control. What is up to us? What is not up to us to talk about Epictetus? What do we control? What don't we control? So first of all, do you have the ability to to know what is under your control and what isn't and then do you have the ability to exert control where it's needed and i think if you can master those two things confidence and control or confidence and self-efficacy similar things if you can do those two things you you're on a good path i think that will help most people navigate most uncertainties beautiful the obvious question put together what does a training plan for developing those capacities look like so self-efficacy you develop self-efficacy through four routes so albert bandura the psychologist who developed social cognitive theory self-efficacy theory recently passed away but he was one of the most cited psychologists ever you've got freud you've got skinner and uh, skinner's pigeons and rats um you've got think the, the 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 big names when people think of psychologists who do you think of albert bandura is right up there with them he wrote hundreds and hundreds of books and articles and he wrote about um he pioneered the it was one of the pioneers that shifted psychology from behaviorism like pavlov's dogs and mm -hmm. skinner's rats into this the cognitive revolution of the 50s 60s 70s and he said that you improve someone's self-efficacy through four ways in order the the weakest way is a reinterpretation of physiological symptoms so if i've got butterflies in my stomach is that a good thing or a bad thing can you reinterpret those physiological symptoms 
that's the weakest way. We've then got what's called social persuasion. Like if you have, if I'm your coach and I say, Tom, I believe that you can achieve that outcome. I believe that you can put down that process, that you can do those necessary steps to get to where you want to be. I think you can do it. That is a form of social persuasion. But what if we don't have a coach? What if we're halfway up a mountain and that coach is back in front of the log fire 300 miles away? Well, we can use self-talk. We can use our internal dialogue to, to bolster that sense of, of, of self-efficacy through, through social or verbal persuasion. Now, do you say, I believe I can climb this mountain? We can. Or we can use that third person self-talk where we, where we imagine it is our coach saying, Martin, I think you can do it. Or, or, or if, if my coach uses a, a nickname, he calls me Jonesy, I'll say, Jonesy, I believe you can do it. So it's internal. So it's, in, it's my self-talk trying to bolster that social persuasion. The second in strength is something called a vicarious experience. This is the idea that if I can see somebody who's similar to me achieving what I want to achieve, it's the idea of, well, if they can do it, I can do it. It's the, and, and going back to, you know, your raw Marines training, this is the, this is what most people that I've spoken to who enter raw Marines training is it's, they know it's difficult. They look at that 32 weeks and think, Ooh, I'm not sure about that, but the, there's thousands of people who've done it before them. So if, if it's achievable, if they can do it, I can do it. If people have got through these arduous selection courses before, then it's not impossible. So if they can do it, I can do it. And, and they breathe the same air as me and they wear the same boots that I do and they wear the same kit. So if they've done it in those conditions, I can do it. So that's that vicarious experience. It can be a double-edged sword though, because if you see someone who you th who, who fails then you can say, well, if they failed, maybe I can't, that I'm going to fail as well. And again, talking to people who've been involved in special forces selection, for example, that's really common. The people who come off the course and come home and say, well, if I failed, you're screwed. You don't even apply because if I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm such a better soldier than you are. So if, you, if I can't do it, you can't do it, which is not, not true. But anyway, the, that vicarious experience can be positive. It can be negative. But the number one way of improving someone's efficacy beliefs is through what we call mastery experiences. And that's just simply, if I've done it before, I can do it again. So why do I, why have I got a high efficacy beliefs that I can run 5k? Because I've, I have done it before. Nothing's changed. So if I did it a, a week ago, why can't I, I can do it now. I know I can. Does that translate across um, non-specific environments? So, for example, I've done many difficult things in the world of physical domains, and then I know I can maybe translate that to my relationship. So that's that's that is the beauty of coaching. Is we are if you've got a coaching relationship, if you're working with a practitioner, a coach, a psychologist, a mentor, whatever, a skilled coach will hopefully get that out of you. Because this is the question I always get asked: Well, what if I've never done this? What if I'm people, there's someone who runs marathons at some point in their life has never run a marathon. There's always a first marathon that you'd never got through training. When you started training, you hadn't been given your green beret at the beginning. So you've not experienced it before. So how do I know I can do it? So that's where a skilled mentor or coach will come in is they'll say, well, yes, you, I agree. You've never done that, but what have you done 
that is an important process, an important step. So have you been able to manage your in that, that negative internal dialogue before? Have you have you been able to quiet down that self-critic and and turn up the volume on that self-coach? Well, yes, I have, because I used to play cricket when I was a kid. Ah, mm-hmm. and we was coming back full circle in terms of how we could use our experiences and make them um, uh, come to the come to the surface. So mastery experiences doesn't have to be, I have won an Olympic gold medal before, but in order to win an Olympic gold medal, we can break it down in terms of the steps it takes mm-hmm. physically, nutritionally, sleep and rest behaviors, different thought processes, attitudes, behaviors. And we can probably show that you do have efficacy beliefs to achieve bits of that. And when you put it all together, that increases your belief that you can achieve a gold medal. I love that. And I love the direction towards break it down to smaller, smaller objectives too. That's and it. then that's the almost the Piagetian model again um, yeah. of, of constructing a, a kind of a globally better you. Okay. Yeah. That's why so goal setting, that's why we, if you go to goal setting, if you do, if mm-hmm. you're just talking about long-term goals, really difficult because yeah. they're so far away and they let's talk like weight loss. If you've got someone who says, I want to lose 10 kilograms, that's a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that's going to come off in a week, a month, or even three months. Probably we talk, that's probably best part of six months of, of effort. So he's like, can, can I do it? Six months is a long way away. Can I do that? Well, well, that's the outcome goal. What's the process goal? What's the medium term goal? What's the short term goal? What do you want to achieve over the next six hours that's going to contribute to that end point? And when you break it down that way, so well, in the next hour, I am going to spend 15 minutes of that hour standing up. Like just, that's it. Like nothing extravagant. It's just, I'm going to use that behavior that I can control that I can do the next hour. And if I do that consistently over the next six months, that will contribute to that weight loss goal. So that that's all it is. It's breaking things down into what's mm. immediately in front of you. So I just want to get your feedback on something that I do here and to like, and that breaking down to process goals is something we absolutely do in terms of our coaching something we layer on top of that is we think of, well how are we training our character in that moment and the objective almost becomes to instead of completing the process goal or i suppose additionally and to completing the process goal it's like are we train your character at the same time so to use that same example it's like well i'm going to take the courageous action when um uh, when presented with this opportunity to perform my process goal and that's going to um I don't know if you know this is the right word, but it, it sounds right. Sublimate across to other areas of, of life. Yeah. But the, the, it's the idea of ultimately what what is important and you, your core values, your core direction in life. Mm-hmm. And it could be, well, how does doing what you're wanting to do, how does it support okay. or thwart those core goals in life and and if that is those those stoic virtues mm-hmm. if it's religious um virtues if it's if it's things that tie into a different belief system that those are the things that are your your guiding principles that you can keep coming back to and some things as 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 as, as we know, just an, uh, are under partial control or not under control. Um, this idea of indifference, I think that, you know, these preferred indifference, we prefer to be healthy, but things can happen. So 
that can lead us down that path. Well, if we're just focusing on things that cannot be controlled, that's probably going to fuel emotional distress because you're now not, you can't do anything about it. And, you know, when I, when I was working in Canada, one of the things I did was I, I went and watched a load of youth hockey, ice hockey. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in these events at the time, there were a couple of events where referees and coaches had been physically uh, assaulted quite seriously one, one person was put into a coma um, in a car park beaten half to death by a, a, a player and his dad they beat him with a, with a hockey stick and we're talking like 12 12 year old not even Fuck an old man. they just beat them up and it was like well why why on earth would that happen like these these normal people these sane individuals they, they're normal functioning parts of society you put them on an ice rink and you watch them they're now watching their son play not play perform not perform they go literally loopy so trying to understand well, what happens and and my conclusion was that that these individuals have got a goal they want something to happen so that that dad let's just say it's the dad it could be the mum. But the dad wants their son to play in the NHL. They have got a goal for their kid. They Hockey in, in Canada is massive. To say it's a religion doesn't do it justice. It's massive. So I want my kid to play in the NHL. Now I'm watching my kid play in hockey and I know there's a scout. They're being scouted. Someone's looking in, in like, to get them into the next level of, of hockey in Canada. But the coach isn't playing him. So now I've got a goal but there's a blocker, there's an obstacle, there's something that's not not allowing me to live that goal, even though it might be my kid's goal, it might not be, a, but I am frustrated and that frustration builds. Or it's like if a referee makes a bad call and they're, they're now have been simbined, I'm going to target it at the referee. And it, it's this idea that when you are focusing on things that are not under your control, the outcome can be extreme emotion in this case, frustration and anger. And that, that was in the hockey context, but coming back to, to what we were just talking about, I think it's true for, for lots of these indifference, these things that we don't have complete control over that if we focus exclusively on them, then they can result in difficulties. If we can focus our attention on things that are within our control, then what's going to block those things happening? And if that is your character, your virtue, those core beliefs that you hold dear that are under your control, if you spend time focusing your attention on them, then the outcome will be probably be better for you than focusing things that are not under your control. Coming back to mental toughness, is there a, a limit on its utility? Does it become to a point where you're so mentally tough that it comes across as rigidity? And the reason... I ask that is because one of the things that you learn through, well, I learned through the military, lots of people learn different elements of like um, of sport, endurance sport is a classic one. It's getting very good at pushing up with suffering and being uncomfortable. Is like, And I've seen that that has a, um, a lack of utility or is it that there needs to be a complementary skill set developed to, um, to support that? Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting question. There's a, there's a, there's a couple of American... Um, practitioners coaches who do a lot with the u.s special operations community or they, they support people who are applying for those courses they've written a book um, and in that book there's a story about mental toughness they, they claim that mental toughness is irrelevant pointless and they say this story goes 
something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, is that on a sniper training course, whatever, individual is crawling through the grassland and there's snakes and those snakes bite and that individual stays still and they just get bitten loads of times by these snakes venomous snakes i don't know but they're getting bitten and they're saying well that that's because that person is mentally tough and their 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 mental toughness is manifesting the fact that they're not reacting to snake bites now i'd argue that they're not mentally tough that that the that's not mental toughness being belligerent being just pig you know, pig headedness and just pushing through stuff that's not mental toughness so if you're climbing a mountain and you're yeah. you, you you're ascending a mountain and you come across a rock fall and now the path is blocked and is is mental toughness just like plowing through that rock fall into something that's probably really dangerous that the fact it's fought the rocks have fallen it's probably might happen again it's really dangerous is mental toughness the person who just will 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 find a way through that rock fall or is mental toughness the person that recognizes that they've gone the wrong path that actually looking at the whole the situation as a whole that the right thing to do is to come back down the mountain and find a safer route now which one is mental toughness I would argue it's the latter. It's not about just putting your head down and getting through anything. It's about being aware of what's right for that moment, for that time. The ability to suffer for suffering's sake, I would say is not mental toughness. The ability to suffer for something that's bigger than you, that's important, that you're able to put your wants and needs and desires to one side to get an essential task done that's arguably mental toughness it's not just mindless suffering yeah that's what i was going to kind of bring in here like it's um angela duckworth and grit talks about a unifying purpose and that seems what's missing with that um that that kind of model of mental toughness is pigheadness and stubbornness and just yeah. doing like so I'm guessing that because that requires agility because the goal is to achieve the goal rather than, and it's got to be a bigger, deeper purpose behind it, which can be accomplished in many different ways. Yeah. You know, if you're going in the wrong direction, a step backwards is the right direction. Yeah. So men yeah. mental toughness is recognizing that I've gone the wrong way. I have mm -hmm. to, I have to step back. And you know, I've heard plenty of stories of people on these arduous selection courses who've gone into a certain valley and thought, I don't think I'm going the right way here, but there's someone else in front of them. And it's like, do I follow that person? Have they got the right coordinates or do I step back, go in the other direction? And it's that process of being able to just think about things. That, I mean, that is an element of, of being mentally tough. It's to, to question some assumptions, to question things, not just blindly follow what's in front of you and keep your head down and keep going. Certain situations that's needed, but I'd argue that being able to to reflect and contemplate is a cornerstone of, of what mental toughness is. Yeah, and if you also think about the development of the military and how that's been utilised, we've gone from blocks of a thousand men just running at each other in, in squares to elite to units of four to eight people being very agile, making decisions themselves and and creating that autonomy and that flexibility in your approach to that. Mm. Yep, absolutely. There's also kind of the idea in the mountains is of, okay, well, if there's an avalanche and you, you see those warning signs, then it helps to have those phrases inbuilt and those processes going like, if I notice this, then it's 
I recognize it. Like, so where does, is there a place for having pre-built systems or having phrases to encourage that um, flexibility there? Yeah, that's, we call that if-then planning. Um, okay. I mean, that, that coming back to self-efficacy, that's a way of bolstering someone's mastery experiences because you might not have done it, but if this happens, then I do that. So you, you've got that mental model in place or that, that, that planning place. If something happens, then that happens. I mean, this is what, this is common, something commonly done with when I'm working with athletes. I'll, I'll, it's, it's quite easy with athletes because you kind of know what's going to happen in, in, mm -hmm. in, in a major tournament. Or you can say, well, if this happens, then I do that. It's not so easy with the military because it's, so, it's so much more unpredictable. We don't know when people are going to deploy or how long or what the conditions are. But we can still go through a similar process of, of, of anticipatory coping of if this happens, then I do that. If that happens, then I do that again. If it keeps going, then I change this. Or if it keeps going, I don't change that. I just keep, keep doing what I'm doing because it will change eventually. And it's very easy to translate that to the world of business as well. If this happens in this, um, I don't know, performance review with, a, with an employee, then this is how I, res I respond. That's yep. a really useful tool. Yes, SOPs. I mean, that's what the military mm -hmm. use. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, SOPs, standard operating procedures. Same thing. It's if-then planning. What do I do in a certain situation? I pull out my card that's got my SOP in it, right? What do I do? Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have to remember them all. We can write them down. Yeah, love that. Is there anything that we haven't talked about in terms of mental toughness that is is really useful? I think it, something to consider. A PhD student of mine, um, Brad Cooper, not the actor, different, different, different Brad Cooper. He's a busy man. <laughs> um, he 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 did a really interesting thesis based on his experiences of being a, an endurance athlete. So he'd won the race across America, the cycle event. He'd been to Kona number of times won't want to do him disservice by getting the number wrong but a few and um, very good ironman triathlete sub three hour marathon runner uh, again probably faster than that just a, a really good endurance athlete and it was during the race across america that he recognized that he'd done a lot of the nutrition the physiology but he, he was noticing these ups and downs of, of his motivation of his ability to cope of his mindset just fluctuating he was trying to understand why like why does that happen if if you if you've trained in a certain way and you've eaten certain foods and you, you you've squared away all those components performance and so why am i still fluctuating why is it that i don't feel as good now as i did an hour ago if um, if all all things considered everything's the same why am i feeling different so that was his phd thesis and what he revealed what he showed was that mental toughness is not something you either have or don't have it's a what we call a person situation interaction. So there are certain times when it will be high. There are certain times when it'll be low. So you're, it's not a trait. It's not something that you have inherent in you. It's an interaction between you and what's around you. So for example, he told a story of um, when he was riding, he, was, he, he, he raced in the two man event and do really well. And there was a team of Germans and the Germans were four-man event. They were ahead of them. And they saw them like coming, approaching. And, and that was like, right, I need to keep going. I need to keep going. So he kept on going. There's other times when there were things around his family who were supporting him. And, and, and I think one of, one of his family had given him the bad, had given him um, bad directions. And he'd actually gone off, off, um, off the right road. So then he was like, well, I feel angry 
but do I feel angry at my child? Because they didn't mean to do that. They were trying to support me. And it was all these different situations were emerging as as they went, as you went through these races. And and we just showed and we, we did this experimentally as well, that we that mental toughness will change moment to moment depending on what's happening in the situation. Um, for example, if you are sleep deprived, your capacity to cope with normal things will be diminished. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's got young children, I've got two <laughs> two daughters, you know, when you're sleep deprived, you are more irritable. You're more likely to have a bit of an argument with your partner. And so are you able to draw on your mental toughness capacity can you withdraw from the bank if you if you if the bank's closed because you, you you've got things that are stopping you with using those resources or assets in that moment mm. okay beautiful so the summary of that would be ensure that you have that um as many things going for you as possible it's to con it's to consider what's happening in the situation and what what we might look at is again if I was coaching somebody or, or working with someone as a psychologist, it's can we can we think about well what supports mental toughness and what thwarts it, uh, and what so what what yeah. supports goal striving and what thwarts it, and if we know that there are certain things that will undermine your goal striving, well can we remove any of them? Can we find a different route that means we don't come across those things? Can we build on the things that support our goal striving? Can we we build on things that support our ability to cope in that situation? So it's just being aware that mental toughness, resilience, grit, all these things, whether they're the same, whether they're different, that then it's not as simple as just do a couple of exercises and you become grittier do a couple of things and you become more resilient it's not that simple it's a it's a complex process that Mm -hmm. that that is overlooked a lot of the time a lot of the conditions a lot of the the things that are supporting and thwarting resilience mental toughness grit hardiness they're they're, it's a it's a complex situation perfect well i think that's a great place to to wrap up i've asked you one question out of the 23 that i had written down (laughs) um so that's that's a good sign um that we've been talking about interesting stuff so thank you so much for your time um where can people find out more about what you do your work um and kind of and follow follow what you're doing yeah the the best place is probably linkedin um so there's a lot of martin joneses in the world yeah um, so <laughs> uh, martin i jones so if you type in my middle initial which is i um that's not for indiana by the way um, <laughs> that that's probably the best way of finding me through linkedin perfect thank you so much for your time dude my pleasure thank you